I ask lots of questions. I'm always asking people how they feel. In team sports, especially contact sports, often how you feel is the last question you've been asked. Maybe you've never been asked that question, how you feel about a movement. So sometimes it can be strange and confusing for people. But I give them lots of, uh, James Wilde talks about old and new, right? The, the good and bad, contrast. I'm always providing contrast. I encourage someone to do a drill. And if they're going to do it poorly, I let them do it twice poorly. I let them feel it. Then I give them some very small cues, analogies, some feelings, some goals. Yeah, I create an environment for them to explore a new, new movement pattern. And I ask them how it feels. And they're like, oh, actually, my old way isn't actually the best way because you've shown me this new way. But it's completely contrasted to what I've been taught. You're telling me the complete opposite thing to what I would normally do. But I've tried it and it feels good. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Welcome to Performance Tips for AFL Staff and Athlete Podcast. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host. And today my guest is Jonas Dodo, who is the head coach at Speedworks Training. Our key topic for today's chat will be all around maximizing athletic speed for field-based athletes. So coaches, athletes that are tuning in, make sure to get your notebook out. This will be an amazing uh, episode. Thank you for everyone that's tuning in. And uh, welcome, Jonas. Really looking forward to our second take uh, of this of this chat. So for those that tuned in last time, sorry about the audio. Yeah, we've got a clean audio now. So really looking forward to it, mate. Looking forward to it too. Thank you for having me on board. And yeah, yeah. Last time was was cool. So look, we've got a second take. It better be better, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, for those that aren't aware of your background, Jonas, do you mind providing, I guess, how you started in the industry and then the birth of, of Speedworks training and, of course, your your consultancy work that you've been doing over amongst elite, elite teams over the last few years? Yeah, so I played rugby through school, got to uni, was broken, saw a lot of therapists and realized I enjoyed what I was hearing. I I enjoyed the puzzle of everyone trying to fix me. I was discouraged by this, the variation of like, you know, perspectives as to what I should do. One group, a physio will say X, an osteo will say something else, a podiatrist will say something else. So that discouraged me in my thoughts that I can get myself healthy. But I also love puzzles, so it really just opened my eyes to, oh, wow, so many different people who, as a as a layman, we would see as just being a medical professional, can have such different perspectives. Anyway, so that was university. It, it kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of learning about speed and rehab and return to running and, and, and finding elite coach down path in the States. And, and, and then he came over here and I had four years under him as, a, as his apprentice and um, it really gave me an opportunity to to dig deep into his philosophy, into his training methodology and, and how, and also to do a historical review. And uh, not a lot of people know this. I don't talk, talk about this a lot, but he, he had like, uh, I don't know, a decade or two decades worth of programs. And I spent one summer just going through all of them and looking at the blueprint of how Dan did things when he was younger. He had younger, healthier athletes. And how he evolved when he started recruiting and maybe just attracting more broken athletes who were trying to reinvent their careers. 
and then they did a really good job of doing it or he attracted the vulnerable athletes who had shown talent but kept broke breaking in everybody's system but had come to him and he was able to keep them in one piece to to help them reach their potential by doing not novel training but just by doing what he needs to do as opposed to what sometimes we want to do and that's the discussion I'm always having with therapists and, and coaches is that if you know, if you have some basic heuristics about what you need to do, then actually you can avoid uh, when, when, when shit hits the fan and, and athletes are broken, you've got a short turnaround, you can really dial down to what are the necessities, what are the, the big rocks, because sometimes those small rocks and those nice to haves are the things that keep people getting rebroken or keep preventing people from healing and getting back to the, the performance level they need to to return to performance so that was really interesting just studying Dan and studying how things change over time then I by that point I had a track group and junior athletes Paralympic athletes amputees cerebral palsy and we took them those guys to the Olympics in 2012 then I had an opportunity to either stay in track and field or move back into like a rugby environment I stayed in track and field I started a charity and between and now I've got my dates wrong from between 20. No, no, that's right. 2012. And then between 2012 and 2016, I, I coached a bunch of kids, 10, 12, 15 kids. Several of them ended up going to the Olympic games, uh, four for GB, two for, uh, for Ghana and Ivory coast and, and one more for another country that is missing me right now. And then the following world champs in 2017, I had Reese Prescott make the final. And, and that was uh, unheard of and unexpected from him. In fact, when Reese didn't go to the Olympics in 2016, when all of my kids were on a plane on the way to go to the Olympics holding camp, Reese was at a, a competition at home and went around, I think he ran around 10-0 or, or a high 9-9, but I think, I feel, I feel like he ran 9-9 or 10-0, I can't remember. But everyone was taking off on the plane to go to, to Rio and they were all talking to each other like, oh my God, have you seen what Reese has just run? Have we seen what Reese has just run? And then they're just flying away. And it was quite funny because then they didn't see what he ran in the final and everyone was wondering for like the the whole journey to Rio. He didn't have it. But that was the beginning of his his journey and an elite level where all his training partners who you trained for three or four years had reached or were going to the games and were doing amazing things and he was at home left behind. But actually that was the first step because just the following season, he went and made the final and, and, and ran consistent 9-9 since. So that's track and field. But alongside track and field, I run in a charity. And the charity, Speedworks Charity or the Academy, has always been there to help me find resources and support interns and, and staff so they can support my track and field guys. So that would be one side of it. And then the other side, I spent most of my time, uh, most of the paid work was done going to Bath Rugby Club or doing rehab with 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 uh, people like Theo Walker at the time, he was my first my first rehab project in ACLs, and again maybe in 2017, I uh, no, maybe in 2015 when Logan was born, same year. That's how I, I remember these things. And so I had this journey of learning rugby because that was my sport, going into return to play because that's what made sense to me. Realizing I didn't know enough, so studying track and field and studying that deeply and falling into track and field. As a, as a real outsider of track and field, doing things very differently, learning from my rugby and football environments and applying those lessons to my track and field group, learning from my track and field environment and diluting those lessons so that it could apply 
in my team sport environment. And so that that was really that's really been my journey since 2015 is that I've always had a foot long jumpers to perform really well on a specific date and then actually trying to return players and support coaches understand my philosophy so that they can create robust runners in their sport HD and, and I can't always you, you can hear my stories meander so you can and so having those two big rocks in my career as part of my work has always been really fruitful because when the monotony of track and field gets to you it doesn't matter because the the day-to-day and sometimes the hour-to-hour in a team sport is always full of chaos so you, you don't have to worry about that and when the chaos is disrupting your mind and your and your focus and, and your ambition for for greatness because sometimes all you have to do is survive in a team sport not necessarily thrive so when that gets to you, okay, I've always got a few individuals that, that I can over-focus with, where I can hyper-focus and really um, try to deliver greatness. And, and then you, you, like I've said before, one dilutes into the other. What you start figuring out over here, you know, the past three years, I haven't had any track and field. So since COVID, there's been no track and field until two weeks ago when Reese Prescott has come back to me to train and to get ready for the Olympics. The Olympics we missed in COVID. And what's really nice is because I've been forced with, with all, all the teams I work with at the Premier League and AFL now and, um, and NFL and, uh, and Rugby League, Rugby Union, like the, having all of those sports, but everyone having the same goal, like your, your sport is an individual. It is, your sport is not very specific compared to other sports. Everyone thinks it is AFL, you guys run double the volume, different culture. Um, rugby union, <clears throat> rugby league, there could be differences in culture and differences in background. But two arms, two legs, running under gravity, we, we know we're all dealing with very similar things, trying to run fast, evade, take space, create space. We're all doing very similar things. Just the, the constraints of the, of the rules uh, and the culture might reduce some of the degrees of freedom, but we're all doing very similar things. And having to, to not just develop a course or do a bit of mentorship, but actually go into teams and help definitely the, the underpinnings of what long-term speed development looks like and what long-term return to play, the expectations about the stages you're going through and return to play and how a player should return to survive training or do they return really confident, ready to thrive in training. That has been a real massive challenge over the past couple of years and we've had some really good successes across various team sports. So actually... This is the first time I've given this reflection. The past two weeks coaching Reese has been so smooth and has been so good. And I think it's because maybe I'm a better coach now because track and field makes you feel like you need to focus on lots of nuances. But team sports makes you realize that you, there's only a few heuristics that we should really talk about. Franz has made that really clear. When I look at when I look at all the variation in our data on players, that's really clear. You can have all these big differences in body types and and maybe physical profiles. So that makes and uh, makes us think that there must be these real big differences in how people run. But when you normalize data to leg length, when you when you have a big enough data set to start to see trends, actually the, there's only a very few ways of running, and and a lot of it is cause and effect. And so. I guess that's been refreshing in team sports to the point where I haven't had to think about track 
Reese has come back to me in decent physical shape, absolutely not coordinated, absolutely really relying on physical strength. Whereas before he was a Bambi, massive scoliosis in, the, in his back, decent leg, left, leg, leg length discrepancy. We skilled his way out of physical limitations. Whereas in team sport, often you physically, you, 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 you muscle yourself out of lack of skill and lack of efficiency. And we say it's totally fine until someone breaks and then that's the time we want to fix it. You say, well, he runs this time and he's healthy. So if it ain't broke, don't break it. But I'm sure I've heard Lauren Seagrave say, if it ain't broke, break it. <laughs> like if it ain't broke yet, you better break it now as in change the movement pattern or at least evolve the movement pattern now so that it keeps going forwards. Otherwise it will break. And then now you have to address it. And, and anyway, so that that is a very long intro. I think I've spoken about my intro in for like 13 minutes. So. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. Like I even want to go straight back to the start. I yeah, yeah. Dan Faffin going through the his programs, just nerding out on him. But also you mentioned as he got a different population from, I guess, as his reputation grew over his career, he started getting the more complex cases, more injury prone, vulnerable athletes. What, what were some things that you took away from what he took out of the program, I guess, or what he put in with those um, athletes compared to early days where he was working with the more, yeah, I guess, healthy athletes. Yeah, I guess Dan Dan would describe his program as an eclectic collection of training system, and so maybe the first thing that I reflect on and that you kind of see in the program is that I'm going to go off on a tangent. It's easier this way. I decided to after I learned from Dan Path to go maybe two or three years later and learn from five or six coaches that had also learned to Dan as a mentor. Half of those coaches had learned from him at different points in their career, but didn't look to Dan. In fact, openly maybe said that, no, I don't really believe in Dan's philosophy. And by looking at, and, and so I flew to the States, I drove from Florida, myself and another coach, Michael Afalaka, we drove from Florida through Louisiana, through Texas, I don't know, wherever we went, and we saw six coaches, six world-class coaches who had coached medalists and, and, and NCAA champions, etc. And the common denominator across the board was that their, their microcycles, be it a six-day build-up with a high-low, be it a five-day with, with a day off in the middle of the week um, and just having two high sessions, um, be it a program that was more towards, let's say, aerobic, anaerobic conditioning, decent volume, pushing the limits of the physiological system, especially just from a anaerobic ability to regenerate. So there's one side. You had other people who had gone more of a speed power route. They had gone more of a really focusing short to long acceleration. And you had a group that was kind of in the middle that did a bit of both. And, and don't get me wrong, every group did each of those components every group did a bit of aerobic conditioning pushed their anaerobic at a point did acceleration speed work but what differed was the proportion of how much that was within the week what differed was the proportion of the year how much did, did that become a real focus and but when you look at dan's program he has a bit of everything in moderation and he has a bit of everything in moderation across the whole year and there are subtle changes Stu McMillan talks about complex hierarchy in, in periodization and the fact that 
you can have a primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary hierarchy. So even so, when we talk about training speed year-round, cognition that there's speed in the program in your first three weeks in your GP. But it probably, for me, is probably a tertiary um, priority. It's in the program. It's happening, maybe even happening twice or three times in a week, but it's in a diet format. And it's in a diet format because actually just working on skills and drills, how to create a robust pelvis, how to land and stack your joints appropriately, how how and when to switch, how to create good co-contractions. Now with some of the best 1500 meter runners in the country, those who do that basically speed work in diet or in decent portions prior to doing their endurance work run better. They run more efficiently. So there is, even in your GPP, there's an element of less developed speed so that we can prepare people to do whatever else they're going to be doing. And so what I saw in this program, generally in a normal year, there's this understanding of one of the principles of training, gradual overload. So you need that specific movement patterns and exercises that give you that load, but you need it to gradually grow over time. There are times where you need lots of variation. And there are times when monotony is what we're gain, what we're looking. But in team sports, you get stuck in um, again, a damn path phrase. Today, I'm a, I'm a pathfighter, so I'll just talk damn path. He talks about stimulate, adapt, stabilize, and actualize. And he, and he will often say people get stuck in a stimulation and a- adaptation cycle, changing their program way too soon, creating more variation in training way too soon. I, I'm working with a few academies at the moment, like in embedded into the team and supporting the coaches with long-term speed development. And the common, the common thing that happens and it's hard for them not to is to always want to change what they're doing oh, last week we did this we're going to change this variation last week this so there's always change and and, and and they're like okay entertaining great coaches can see differences but then they're then they're measured on how well are the players improving this how well are they moving better and how well is that transferring into performance into football and speed isn't just linear speed <clears throat> breaking change of direction jockeying um, pivot steps or everything that are, is, are the fundamental components of playing fast. Practicing these things, but they're practicing it too varied. They're practicing it too inconsistently. And actually, as soon as we go stabilize, just do the same thing again. Oh, but we've done it already. Add a stick. Oh, but we've done that already. Add a med ball. Uh, we've done that already. Add an aqua ball, you know, or aqua bag. And, and actually, you're then finding yourself doing very similar drills. So there's some monotony and stabilization there. But then the monotony doesn't limit the stress and doesn't r- limit the adaptation because you're adding something new, just something to create a bit of a different stress. So that's what you see in Dan's program that there's, he says, an eclectic collection on his acceleration day and his progressions. You see the theme of real quality nervous system development, real quality skill development. On his capacity days, you see real quality technical endurance where the volumes don't go as high that he might be a third lower in some of the volumes and some of the stresses that a real intense anaerobic program would do so he does enough to create stimulus and and he won't necessarily do the same distances when you look at really good programs you might see them doing 10 200s or 8 300s in the part of their winter by learning from dan and looking at so many programs you realize that there are six or seven different ways that people choose to do that that 2,000 to 3,000 meters worth of volume. 
And actually, so the lesson isn't that you must do the session. Well, you see Dan's sessions, he's got five different options for the players to choose or for the athletes to choose. And they all kind of summarize to a similar amount of volume, but some are longer in, in each rep is longer and the recoveries are, are appropriate and some are shorter and the recoveries are more broken. It's almost like he's figured out how to do energy system development. And regardless of who he's got in front of him, he knows his rules of thumb for developing that system, but he has multiple ways of making that cake. He can do it so that you can only run in a straight line over 40 or 50 meters. And that might be, and it's probably based on skill and health. So if you're doing, you're doing only 40 meter reps, dribbles or sprints or strides, well, you're doing them back to back. You're getting there, you're turning around, you're, you're having a breath, you're, you're doing it back. Okay. You have the ability to run longer reps and you can keep your technique smooth. Okay, cool. Okay. You can run to 150. You can now run the bend. Like for some of my athletes, they just don't run the bend. That's very untypical in track and field. In fact, the way I train is probably very untypical in track and field because I'm, I'm, I'm training the way I'm explaining here. I understand the underpinning physical quality, understand the constraints of how you can stress that energy system or skill to create adaptation and don't be locked into what is traditionally done in your sport. Instead, do what you need to do for your athlete. Because when my athletes have been broken, and I've had athletes and they've been broken a lot in the past, at different points, they've all been learning lessons. Whenever we've rehabbed them, they've come back and run faster than they were prior to getting injured. Often I've had, uh, and, and again, this is 10, 15 years ago, but the, my, some of my main philosophy comes from training a group, someone getting hurt, having to train them differently, do what I need to do rather than what I want to do. And then they return to play and they're faster than the people that did my whole program without breaking. And I'm like, oh, okay, there's something to learn here. And it had to, it happened a few years for me to go, right, <clears throat> rehab isn't rehab and training isn't training. They're the same thing. And it just happens to be that when I have to rehab people and also get them back to performance, I do a better job as a coach choosing the right things. And so three or four years later, no, my SNC program was basically what we was doing now. And mm -hmm. and the way we did our running progression is basically. So I'm still telling the story of Dan Paths and maybe the way to finish it is he has an eclectic collection of training across his training week exposed to different across the training week you should be training and, and the same kind of movement patterns. You should the coaching and the cueing and the, the visualization and the feelings that the athlete is looking for are remain the same. The difference is you have an opportunity to practice it at horizontal in acceleration. You have an opportunity to practice it bouncing in low-level pliers. You have an opportunity to practice it um, running fast, um, relatively fast in upright positions, but also relatively relaxed or maybe grass in, in those same upright positions. You have an opportunity to do it under stress where you're where your body is telling you to stop and your brain has to keep reminding you to hold good positions and you have an ability to do it fresh and easy. And so when we look at vari variation in training, when we look at locking in an attractor, how does Franz talk about locking in the attractor? Well, he says, understand it, understand the skill and then create some chaos, some perturbations in different environments so that the body can lock into what the real attractor is within that skill. And actually, when you look at Dan's training program, and when I've done when I've done a good job of not being in a rush and and allowing that variation, players always become faster, become more robust. I don't have to coach as much. It's like the 
the the baseline of coaching, the language of movement, or the or the the I'm gonna say the dictionary of movement is what I'm doing in my coaching. I'm creating that clarity of what what we want to see and what is good and what is bad. But then their <clears throat> their unique signature of how to do it can only be stabilized by them going to different environments like I've just described, different kind of contexts of learning how to project, how to switch, how to be reactive, how to have trunks discipline and shin discipline. They, they learn those different things across the week. So then the last lesson of Dan Path is probably that that's what you you generally see across his week, a good eclectic collection. You see complex training or complex hierarchy. You see tertiary, secondary and tertiary priorities in the program that the next cycle become primary and second and then that the next cycle the secondary becomes the primary so you see this whatever you need for the next cycle you better be practicing it now so you so what is that that's almost like smooth ramping up of of intensity that's not exposing someone to a variable at high intensity that you haven't already planted the seed prior to in that in the previous cycle and and I think that the progression over the years for Dan, and, and, and I'm speaking for him just based on what I've seen, is that he had higher volumes and higher densities of his program and probably started to figure out what the sweet spot was for each of those sessions, for each of those training cycles, to a point where he had a bit less of volumes on some of those sessions and definitely more variations of how he can address that same component. And so what does that mean? It means that you can you can have a plan and I always say to my athletes, my 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 program is a is a guess. Reese at the moment is funny phrase he's saying is don't trust the process. It's so funny when he says it. And and it's just based on his reflections because all coaches stand on the on on you know the top of the tower and say this program, just trust the process and, and follow the program. But half the time it's BS. Half the time my program is a guess, and and if I'm guessing, then I, as a as a scientist, I have a hypothesis. But I have to keep looking at the results, the petri dish. I got to keep looking at the bacteria. Is it growing? Is it dying? Is it mutating? Is it growing how I expected? And that can be from your data. That can be from your conversations. And too often we have a twelve or twenty four week program. We say trust the process. And we get to week 18 and then we realize it's not working. It's too slow. Whereas we always aim to have little mini peaks. I always underload someone for, for, for four to 10 days, let them bounce back a bit, expose them to something that's decent in terms of intensity. Then I know where they're at. Then I go back into training. So we have these mini peaks. So what I see in Dan's program is I start to see more mini peaks more often throughout the year. I start to see him diluting his training so that it was what a needs must rather than what was just the maximum capacity he had more variations in his program so that he could deal with the changes someone turns someone has a great session on monday they turn up on a tuesday their body's trash monday they took them themselves to a new place a new level that's when that will go great let's actually go to a plan b let's go to a plan c worst of all let's not train you're in such a place today or let's let's adapt our training that's what great rehab coaches do that's what great coaches do. They go, okay, right. I had a plan and you overachieved on one of those days. So I'm changing my plan. Or I had a plan and you broke up with your girlfriend or England lost in the semifinal and you're pissed off or, you know, whatever it is. And so I'm having to adapt around you. And and that can be a ball ache. And people say, yeah, but what if I've got 20 players or 30 players and I'm being pulled left, right and center? And, 
And yeah, I get that everyone's got their constraints in their environment, but it's still not an excuse to 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 not do a good job. It's still not an excuse to just give people what you can give them as opposed to what they need. So that, that would be a long-winded way of just talking about the, the lessons that you take from a, an expert, a guru like Dan, and how you can dilute them from your environment or, or adapt them to your environment. And, and, and the last piece here, Dan's phrase is every good program and system can be shrunk or expanded and still be congruent and still work and still be clear. Your training on heuristics, on understanding pedagogy and, and, and teaching and also understanding physical overload and principles of training and then really having an understanding of the constraints of your sport culturally or even rules and regulations for, for how you actually can apply yourself in the sport. When, when you understand all of those different things and you're not bogged down by dogma and culture and the way it's always been done, then I, I feel like that I feel like because of that's my background, I've been able to go into to each sport and go, wow, like AFL, you've got twice the amount of volume than I've ever seen for for near enough every player, every game of dealing with evading and, and defending in in a in a three D three dimensional environment, people coming from anywhere. Um, the principles of of contact conditioning, the principles of of even to the real specifics of watching someone press someone like a defender pressing an attacker and that overruns or that defender gets chopped and gets cut. The principles of, of effective defence and what they do in their first five and what they do in their second five and the positions they need to be in in acceleration where being fast, being maximal into five in terms of your time can often be leave you of less options when it comes into defence, when it comes to making a tackle and being able to scan and use your feet. Well, those principles are the same across every sport absolutely every sport it's the privilege i've had because I, I didn't really necessarily believe that until i was able to go into so many different environments and everyone thinks our way is the way and it's different to everyone else I'm, and and i don't always say it out loud but it really isn't like the the reality is two arms two legs gravity intimidating people with your speed being able to respond and react and put yourself in good positions to be able to be agile and and all of that stuff that that is just a, a basic skill and if you want to learn the best all you need to do is go into different environments and go okay well which 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 sport and which players have to be absolutely excellent at that component and actually learn from those players and then create a generalized model and that can be applied anyway long-winded i did this last time i'm gonna pause no 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 uh, love it it's great to get a, a good understanding i guess in terms of yeah, like like we said at the start, your background, context around you know, influences of your philosophy and how it's evolved over the years, and that was something I wasn't as aware of as well. Of your work is the rehab and the passion for return to performance, uh, which is clearly something that you, you enjoy tackling. Uh, which I guess goes back to the start, like you said, when you were injured and the problem solving aspect of everyone uh, giving their two cents and different different ways of going about it and, and having that yeah. ability to be able to find an answer. When it comes to field-based athletes, for, for the for the rugby players that are listening, the footballers, and even you know performance staff that are listening in, yeah, you know, obviously track and field. There's always, we've always learned uh, elite sports learned and borrowed from track and field to improve sprinting mechanics, improve acceleration mechanics, and it seems like we're at a phase, or certainly from my perspective, where we're sort of at this crossroads of like, well, how specific, you know, how much of that is relevant to the context of field sport when they are always looking. You know, on the ground or they're looking you know to tackle someone and they can't get in you know it's is it 
actually realistic for them to get into the shapes of a of a hundred meter sprinter where their take off where they can get quite obviously get low and they've got a lot more time and space and nothing in their way to be able to work up to top speed where you know soccer players rugby players footballers they've got lots of distractions whether it be bodies going at them or or a ball to collect do, do you bother uh, I guess how much from a percentage point of view do you bother on the basics of teaching them optimal shapes to project and you know, react and switch really well and then to, at, to a point do you then start to focus on okay let's make this specific to your sport and perhaps getting you know as low as a as a as a hundred meter sprinter might not be as relevant once they've understand the basics fundamentals do you then to you know do you get them more upright in their acceleration in shapes and angles that they're going to hit I guess in their sport if that makes sense yeah it makes sense and and maybe there's some layers to it so maybe the first layer to be clear about is especially this past three years we've We've had different AI systems at the moment. View Motion is is definitely the best AI system out there in the world for video analysis, and so we we have a really cool partnership with View Motion. It's it's coming up to a year now. Maybe maybe it's exactly a year now that we're in October. And but even prior to that, we've been connecting quite a lot of field based analysis of teams team players, rugby, football at, at the most over the past year, AFL, rugby league, and and NBA and, and, and NFL. And so what we're first, what I should start with is any model, any description of what is efficiency, any description of, of poor, robust running and, and any of our data sets are all based on team sports. So we haven't got Reese Prescott in a data set. We haven't got elite athletes. So when I find you a model or I have someone that can run 10.2 meters per second in rugby and who can who can run 1.65 to 10 meters in rugby or in football. When I describe that model or I describe that group of of 50 players that can do that, positions, the technical is all based on your sport. That's the first thing. And actually the lessons are that efficiency is efficiency and some of the, some of the things we see in track and field do transfer across the difference between a slow player and a fast player or a slow player who becomes fast is often moving some key heuristics towards what you might see on on the track and field, right? So, so that there are some similarities for sure, because um, two arms, two legs run under gravity. You want to create large forces in short time, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if we truly believe that physical conditioning, athletic development, strength and conditioning is critical for players, we we create big, strong bums, stable pelvises fascicle lengthening and eccentric work in, in the hamstrings and calves, joint coupling because we're Olympic lifting and jumping and, and and doing explosive movements because we want those physical attributes to turn into power, to be coordinated so that we can produce them quickly. If we truly believe in that, then we need to measure the output of our physical program during the actions that are going to be on the, on the field, during acceleration deceleration change of direction right breaking hard jumping far jumping up jumping forwards double leg single leg jumping sideways again double leg single leg those are for me my my movement screen my movement screen cannot be at half meters per second with my arms overhead doing a lunge or step or uh, overhead squat it, that, that can't be my movement screen because you've all seen great players who can't do that crap 
right? We've all seen it. Now, I'm sure you've seen great players who may not fit your technical model on the field. They probably run fast. They're just not efficient. They are effective, but not very efficient. But at least they're effective. So that's the first place to start. That performance on the field has to be our movement screen. And everyone believes that, but when they come down to doing it, they don't know what to see. There's so much controversy. Sprint training has been made very mythical. Sprint training has been made very academic. The fast university guys over in the States are condemning how academic it's been made. Obviously, I love science. I collect science. We do research. We collect data. But the whole thing about our process and speed solutions as an app, for example, is that you can create analysis using ViewMotion. We can have all of that data, 50, 60, 100 pieces of data for one run. We can throw it into our system. Let, let the algorithm do its thing and it can give you a few priorities to work on. So we're going from collecting lots of data, very scientific and academic, but not getting stuck in the academia, just coming out with some basic heuristics for movement and what people should do and how they should do it based on the data set, based on the research and based on, on, on our philosophy. And the tangent, I forgot what I was up, athletics and track and field and uh, team sport models, fine. So the first thing is, okay, we've talked about those things. When it comes down to your sport and running fast in your sport, sometimes, again, the mythical nature of speed training and coaching technique, and if it should just be pretty, run pretty high knees over wickets, or if it should be effective and, and fast, okay, we measure it with GPS. Well, again, that's why we come back to video analysis. That's why this has been our passion the past three years in team sports and the previous 10 years in track and field is to go what is efficient and effective how do we actually look at the pelvis the the pelvis as an engine switching limb exchange pelvic position and how do we understand how to run fast and reduce stress on the system reduce stress or share the stress across all the joints as opposed to have it locked into one specific area and by doing this, we bring the work of Chris Brammer and Joe Mendiguchi and JB Marin. You bring Dan's philosophy that I think underpinned a lot of this. You bring in Franz Bosch and, and movement variability and attractors and, and what it means to do robust running. And in my mind, there's massive similarities across all the boards. Like our philosophy around PSR, around what is robust running, around what is efficient running is basically us taking from all of those worlds, applying it in team sports and looking who are our players that stay healthy? Who are the players that break down? Who are the players that are healthy? And what do they look like just before they break down, right? When players are returning to play, what do they look like when they're still niggly and not happy? What do they look like when they start to run fast and feel happy? What breaks down when and, and, it, and it then leads to them no longer being happy, no longer being fast or efficient? What, does, what do players who can run again and again and again and repeat excel, what do they look like across those moments? What do players look like who run fast a few reps and actually they drop off? What do players look like who run the same speed across multiple reps but don't run fast in any of them? That's all we've been doing is just going and taking what is the model and how does it look like in all these different scenarios? And then more recently over the past 18 months in, in football, in soccer football, and in rugby, actually, with, with a few teams, we are looking from the top down. And this is where it's made it far easier for everyone to buy in, all the stakeholders, uh, far easier to buy in over the past 18 months because we're not starting from 
physical conditioning or speed or breaking values was starting from the event. She's the same, right, here's my group of academy players and our common problem is that overshooting during pressing or the common problem is they can run fast in the straight line but when we take them into the defensive line in rugby, they they don't run fast anymore or they, 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 they don't know how to control their speed. But their their problems always come from events happening on the field and always have a very specific technical or tactical element to it. And all we end up doing is helping them figure out is the problem that your player isn't fast enough. Okay, maybe they are fast. Maybe they're fast and they don't have brakes, so they're too fast, essentially. But when someone's too fast, don't make them slower. Just give them stronger brakes. Okay, now they've got the brakes. Um, they, they're not confident in using those components. Okay, now we need to do a bit more game speed. We need to do a bit more analysis, give them that confidence. Okay, they are confident, but they just don't know when to do it. Well, coaches, that's your job. That's actually your job now. Like, you've got to um, reinvent your training. You've got to recognize that this is your big problem and not just say they're not robust enough or they don't have the qualities. You don't have to coach it. But what it's doing is it's allowing technical directors, coaching staff, properly understand the puzzle that's in front of them. That I have a cohort of players and of these 12 players, everyone will do everything, but a bigger proportion of work needs to be physical conditioning and linear speed development. Just just leg power, leg drive. That's what they're missing. Leg drive, pushing backwards. That's acceleration. Leg drive, pushing forwards or, or the inverse of that. That's deceleration. They've got great leg drive power. They've got great things. But when we look at them from a frontal plane or when we look at them in, in technical tasks, they don't know how to disassociate their, their trunk from what their legs are doing. So they can't create option positions. Or they, they their, their choice of leg drive means that they are maximizing their five meter time. As in they're, they're running the fastest time to five, which generally is the worst way to have options. It's a great way to run into contact. It's a great way to just go route one but it's the worst way to be prepared for contact. It's the worst way to use your footwork and disassociate a trunk and fend and, and be like the Fijian players, right? Who are always looking for the next offload. You know, that, that you, you need to have leg drive, but also have disassociation. You need to have leg drive, but also get your pelvis into the right position. And these are the things that really maximize your ability to transfer your speed into your game. And this has been... It was always, look, Franz and, and, and JP and, and Eddie Jones talked about option positions two World Cups ago. So that's always been clear. Um, but I think doing it in football and having more teams actively have problems, case studies that say, we have a problem with this. We did the solution and here's the change in a linear. Here's the change in physical capabilities and actually here's a change that's helped them transfer the technical goal that we had in the first place and so most times and i don't mean to sound derogatory or anything like that to people that maybe think differently but most times the argument about oh track and field is track and field and our team sport players don't need that on the field is done from a lens of like one eye it's done from a very blinkered position and it's done from a position that when you think about track and field training, your perception of it is straight arms, bolt upright chest, 50 meters to build to your top speed. And it's based on some very, it's based on a kilogram. It's based on what you expect from a, 
from an analysis, but not based on basic heuristics that transfer everywhere. When we talk about projection, switching, reactivity, trunk discipline, shin discipline, bum before back. When we talk about that, you have to push in order to punch. When we talk about the ability to stack your joints and create pretension and attack the ground. When we talk about, when, when even when you look at James Wilde's research and you look at the quadrants, you could say, well, okay, now finally we have an ability to look at the four different running styles in team sports and be a bit more specific in how we coach and what we want. But actually, from my perspective, everyone should be able to do everything. I need players that can, if they want to, open their hips, get their hips up and attack from above. That's a quadrant one. I need players that even if they attack from above, regardless, they need to push the ground away. That's quadrant two. Once you finish pushing the ground away, you need to rip your foot off the ground and punch your knee forwards, basically switch well that's quadrant three and once you finish switching you better keep punching your knee to the sky to give yourself some vertical lift to lift your pelvis and to balance out the extension you had on one leg with the flexion you have on the other so that you have a robust pelvis well that's quadrant four so are we expecting and really wanting people to sit into quadrants or are we saying robust running requires people who midway through stride can change their step their, their, their leg organization in order to respond to the environment and if so then we're really saying that not we don't want people to sit in the corners of the quadrants but we want them closer to the middle and having access to the ability to attack push rip and punch and actually those become our attractors those become our key cues those become our training menu so that across the training week, you have different opportunities in very similar bouncy, explosive tasks to overcue and overfill what punching means or pushing means to make sense of how the pushing action with, uh, with if you can keep your abs in the sweet spot, that the pushing action turns into a punch really aggressively to, to realize that actually I just have to work on one or two cues that are based on feelings. And actually, I'm developing a really robust player who can do multiple actions, not just specific running technique that only lies when we run without a ball, without a defender. Flip that mindset and instead you say, when I'm running linear without a ball, without a defender, I'm giving, uh, I'm encouraging the player to have access to these movement patterns, to these strategies. We are in certain technical scenarios. These strategies are really, really important. They're really critical to success. And that actually, if I just measure 10 meter time, if I just talk about a strategy that needs, that is a really probably about pushing the ground away, which is the general strategy that everyone talks about. Projection, 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 big shapes, big shapes, big shapes. If I just teach that strategy, I'm actually only making this player good at going route one. And I'm probably not giving them the ability to have more options to go route one, two, three, stop and go and all the other scenarios that you might have to do in your game. So I, I hope that is a, I hope I've made my arguments clear there that the running model is a running model for efficiency in team sports. The running model is based on over 3,000 players and runs in, in at the highest level or development sport, male and female, and us being able to distinguish as the heuristics for what our top performers, our middle performers and our bottom performers do. And how you move from a bottom performer to middle performer can be different to how you move from a middle to a top. 
and what efficiency looks like when you are robust at the same time. The model is based on research into team sports. The model is a heuristic, a, a, a selection of key attractors that are more around how we make a player robust in their running through variation strategies that come round to giving you a very similar outcome. And that actually, if you understand your technical model from the top, if you understand your technical model from the top, from the top down, from what the technical coaches need, from what the game creates, the rules and regulations of the game suggest you need to do certain things. And you understand how skill is linked to those very, uh, and skill uh, of, of your game is linked to the skill of movement. Then you get yourself into a position where you can re return to people to performance through rehab or through general conditioning and prepare them to be fast and efficient, have movement variability so that they can be better and run faster. They can take higher leg speed into contact. They can deal with disassociation of their trunk going into scenarios. They can use their trunk to engage, pull better, very, um, better change of direction. And they know how the heuristics of acceleration are the same, but just inverse heuristics for decel. They you create a common language that you train in the gym on the grass, and and just the level of transfer improves really really quickly. It start with the event and you know, analyze vision with the technical tactical coaches for those athletes that you've identified that have the speed uh, but are lacking the brakes. In your experience, is is that generally with field based athletes a uh, a technical thing in terms of teaching them how to, you know, their footwork in deceleration, or is a lot of it also getting stronger in the gym to handle their speed? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I would say stronger in the gym helps in most scenarios. Most players, especially in contacts, especially in the rugby codes, not necessarily in 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 soccer and and AFL codes, but definitely in the rugby codes are strong enough in most scenarios. And when I say strong enough, I mean that you could probably focus on field based special strength activities around breaking and have a dramatic impact on their breaking without having to go into the gym to do it at a slower level to have a let's say a more localized stress a slower more time under tension stress on the tissue in most scenarios even even with players that aren't necessarily strong enough you can always have a dramatic impact by choosing special strength activities at the appropriate intensities and giving them an opportunity to learn the movement pattern you want whilst stressing the tissue. And actually, if learning is your priority, then you make, you choose the right appropriate stress, the appropriate control chaos level, bit stress doing it, and that's the overload. There's lots of players out there that play their sport and have a, a ramp up uh, exposure to their sport, and that's how they get strong for them. And you take them in the gym, and they say they're, they're not very strong because they don't have the skill to squat. But actually, you get them to do something that requires massive leg drive or massive deceleration. We can measure it all and they're through the roof. So really, we're just using the gym, the barbell as a measuring stick when we should be measuring the event. And and again, come back to view motion. That's why in the past, this was a more theoretical discussion. But through our analysis with, with AI for the past three years, it's one absolutely like there's no there's no doubt about it anymore. It's really clear that you can. Oh, let's go back to it again. Find special strength options. Um, provide them with with the appropriate intent ramping of intensity. Cue them in a way that makes sense to them, 
and put them in positions where you can get enough reps and you'll have a player that can break far more efficiently. And, and, and at least then once you've exposed them for six weeks of a program, and it's not saying you're not doing gym, but once you've exposed them and you see left leg gets gets real good, right leg doesn't, or low low intensity, low speed D-cell gets really good and really clean, but high intensity doesn't, or they can dribble and they can ha- make really good shapes at low intensity, but at high intensity they can't, then the question is what breaks down when the intensity improves or increases breaking down, what are they losing? And then you're just doing your SWOT analysis again. Okay, well, maybe I need to develop this physical quality around this body part you still got the same question do i do that in the gym or do i do that in my drills so if it's always based around skill skill learning and skill is your litmus test each time you're training a a special strength activity then you you figure out based on the element of skill what is broken down and then you create more exercises or opportunities to stress that area but again does that have to be in the gym we always go to the gym I go, in every environment I go to, the question is, so what do I do in a gym to train it? I'm like, well, we're kind of already doing it. So why isn't it transferring? Because you're not doing it to transfer. Gym does not track. Gym does not transfer to the grass. Gym has like a 40 or 30% transfer level. Like, like it, does, it doesn't really go across. Once you've done gym for two years, two to three years, that improvement doesn't change anything. You might find junior academy players who come into a, a, a first team setup who are actually strong enough to be able to survive in that environment. But in order to thrive, increased strength or physical capacity doesn't necessarily make them better in their skill. It just makes them a bit more, I guess, robust in their ability to repeat it, to deal with the compression, to deal with the knocks, to deal with the work capacity of day to day. So physical strength, I think, is more about giving people the foundations to train full time to play week to week, to deal with accumulation of stress so that they can do different, again, so they have some variations in their in the fiber that's chosen in the movement pattern that they choose. It doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, now they are 30% stronger in the gym, in a squat or deadlift or whatever it is, that now they have 20% increase in step length. It does happen when you're slow and you're moving to be in moderate speed, but it rarely happens when you're in that middle group and you're trying to push on to be in the top group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you've reached a certain level, uh, you need to get more specific. And the going back to how you mentioned the effective running compared to efficient running. So I imagine there'd be some hard forwards coaches here listening to this and, and have that athlete or a couple of athletes in their squad that are highly effective with their performance, the athletes they work yeah. with, they're the stomach yeah. player. But perhaps with the, whether using view motion or just general analysis whatever screening they're doing at the club and they have identified that they're they're a potential risk for for injury in the future what's a way that you engage those star players that are performing really high level they haven't had injuries to that point of their career yet so it's not a problem but like you said you want to um, work on it now before it is a problem uh, and before it's a bigger problem how do you find to get buy-in from i guess that particular athlete or to engage them yeah i mean the buy-in question always comes up yeah challenge for me sometimes because buy-in isn't really a thing as a while ago i talked to ben rosenblatt about i don't know what was talking on was talking crap about something but he said no i don't want buy-in i don't want i don't want people to buy in i'm not trying to sell i want people to go on a journey i want people to understand so i i guess if from that i'm saying buying is more like education i never have to create buy-in i show people look this is how you move great 
you're a world-class performer, great. I'm not trying to change you. I'm trying to evolve you. I'm trying to take you to the next level. And you do these things, great. We don't want to lose them. But actually, when you do that, at pushing, but you don't punch. Yeah, you're great at pushing the ground away. So you have a really fast five meters. If anyone stood in front of you, you're going to run straight through them. Great. But actually, when we've got skilled defenders who step a bit to the left or right and position themselves ready to tackle you, and there's a gap, you don't always go for the gap. You always still go into that defender. We've got an issue here. We've got some scenarios. So it's great you can push, but we've got to learn to punch. Why learn to punch? Okay, punch might get you a bit more hip height. It might, it might organically get you to transition without slowing down. It will put you in a position to have better option positions. So this is me theoretically talking, but rather I'll just coach them. But the buy-in thing is just saying, this is what you do. Okay, great. Here's another option. How does that feel? Oh, that feels different. Great, cool. In this scenario, try that option. Oh, wow. Okay, now, now I can solve a puzzle that I couldn't solve before. I never liked doing that before. I would never do that. But now I've got this option. Maybe that's now a new option for me. I, I haven't been very clear in that description, so I'm going to pause for a second. How do you no, create buy Yeah, and yeah, you just coach them improve experience and results. And then... Yeah, questions. I'm always asking people how they feel. In team sports, especially contact sports, often how you feel is the last question you've been asked. Maybe you've never been asked that question, how you feel about a movement. So sometimes it can be strange and confusing for people. But I give them lots of, uh, James Wilde talks about old and new, right? The, the good and bad. Contrast. I'm always providing contrast. I encourage someone to do a drill. And if they're going to do it poorly, I let them do it twice poorly. I let them feel it. Then I give them some very small cues, analogies, some feelings, some goals. Yeah, I create an environment for them to explore a new, new movement pattern. And I ask them how it feels. And they're like, oh, actually, my old way isn't actually the best way because you've shown me this new way, but it's completely contrasted to what I've been taught. You're telling me the complete opposite thing to what I would normally do, but I've tried it and it feels good. Like falling versus flying. You're doing some pogos, you're towing, you're over-rotating, you're, you've got a lumbar lordosis, you're, you're pivoting through your back rather than pushing through your legs, but you have stiff contacts because you're landing on your toes and your plantar flexion is staying rigid. Your ankle, your knee is having to do all of the, the stiffness. Okay, we now push you to be more flat foot on your landing. On your first landing, you sink because now you're flat foot, you're more dorsiflexed, your hip, your knee needs to be co-contracted with your ankle and it isn't because you're not used to it. So you sink. And then my next cue is, okay, it's great because now actually the, the, at least the load is being shared but you can't wait to land to create stiffness. You need to jump before you land. You used to fall over in your jumping. I want you to fly. Now they land flat-footed. They they extend into the ground before landing. They've got pretension. They have a foot that can transfer energy and they can punch into the ground because they've got a bigger surface area. So then they go like, okay, now I feel strong. I can I can produce force. I can use my gym strength. You've changed that whole perception of what a ground contact feels like for an athlete just by making some small changes in how they do their pogos. Same thing. Or if and if it's a challenge, I'll get them in a 50 centimeter box and I just get them to do a drop landing. Drop off the box, land. Land in a half squat. I tell them, land on your toes. Half of them will anyway. More than half will land on your toes. I say, land on your toes. How does it feel? Well, it just feels normal. Land on the whole of your foot. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't feel it through my shins anymore. I feel far more stable. Okay, great. Okay, we're going to do a drop jump or a depth drop. Land on your toes and jump back onto this box. How'd that feel? Normal. Fine. Okay, land with your whole foot and jump onto the box before I land. 
I didn't have to stab the ground and definitely my shins didn't hurt. So I love pain sometimes because pain is like, look, there's, there's something going on here. Yeah, exactly. Pain is, that's, that's trust. Tr trust needs to be earned, not given. So if you're giving someone a contrast of two different drills and they feel pain, discomfort, they feel they need to do more effort, they feel more or, or less unstable, then you're just giving them an opportunity to play on the two ends of the spectrum and they are coming to the conclusion. Now, the barrier might be that it's a new movement pattern, that they're not strong in it yet, that actually they can only do it at slow speeds, at slow amplitudes. That's not the real problem. The, you build that, you scale that with good programming, with good progressive overload, with just good principles of training. But the buy-in is actually the lessons learned, the, the cues that turn into feelings. Everyone's like, what cue should I use for this? What cue should I use for that? And it's like, no, it's the feelings. How do you want the athlete to feel? What do you want them to focus on? They, that's what they take away. If they take it away and they call it flat foot landing, if they take it away and they talk, talk about punching the ground, if they take it away and they talk being able to jump before they land, or if they take away and, and they're like, I can't, I haven't got a word, but I know how it feels. Who cares? As long as they go away with an understanding of I'm empowered now to be able to be more effective during my ground contact, or I'm empowered now to be more effective in order to exchange my legs in the air and be able to be more agile and use my footwork. Oh, excuse me. That's so the buying question is is always challenging for me because of how people traditionally coach. Because what people do, they'll say, I've only got 15 minutes on the field with my players. It's not realistic to coach them individually. And I'll say, you're right. But you have another two hours spread across the week in the gym where you've only chosen to use slow non-ballistic, non-skillful exercises. And when I say skill, I mean having to deal with the chaos of velocity, the chaos of joint co-contractions at high speeds, the chaos of, of trunk perturbations when you're trying to keep your pelvis in a, in a neutral, in a robust position. It's because you've chosen not to teach in the gym. You've just chosen to train in the gym. And then when you're out on the grass, they don't have a font. You don't have a shared language. The players don't appreciate the differences in their movement patterns. So you haven't done the, the, the planting of the seeds when you had the time. You just done what was traditional. Then so if you keep doing the same stuff and expect a different outcome, then you are definitely insane, right? So that's, that's definitely a, a reason why I do so much coach education, reason why I become embedded into teams. Because I do one lesson and you, you go on a course or you watch a YouTube video and you take away the cues and they don't work. And like, well, that ain't going to work. It's like, no, no, you need to be a bit more skillful in your application here. You need to be able to maybe go against some normal things that you would normally do. You need to be a teacher first rather than a trainer. You need to, to create an environment with some basic cues and then get out of the way and let them learn through contrast. Let them learn through different amplitudes. Use video. We, we, spend, we spend a lot of time going heads before and after because even when you feel a bit different, you can't see it. Once you see heads before and after, video absolutely creates the buy-in for every stakeholder, agents, managers, technical coaches, physiotherapists, players, SNC coaches. Video has definitely been the, the universal language to make sense. Of. And so, yeah, player buy-in is, is more like you don't realize everyone is selfish and players are selfish. So you should poke their selfish button.
what do they need to feel better? What What is their bug bear? Are you talking about running faster to a player that can't stay healthy? Stop talking about running faster. Talk about what it feels like to be efficient. Are you talking about running faster for a player who can't repeat sprint? Stop talking about running faster. Talk about what they need to do to run their 16th acceleration in the game. Are you talking about max velocity technique for a player that actually flies well, but can't get into the race? No, talk about pressing during acceleration, during defensive actions? Are you talking about linear speed for a player who can run fast, but when they need to rotate, they struggle? Well, no, just talk about how they can use their trunk, the lessons they've learned in linear speed around projection and trunk control, and how they apply that in a rotation step or how they apply that in a 505. Talk about how they manipulate their body mass and where they put their body. The same thing you were talking about in acceleration, that was about forwards. You talk about it, but you talk about it in the in the gimbal from side to side, but it's the same language. It's the same heuristics. People are locked into track, no track. Get your hips up or hips down ready for, for contact. When the best players are running into contact, they're preparing for contact, they're pushing away with low hips, they're separating away from the defence, they're getting their hips up to run away. The, the fullback is coming across. They're dropping their hits again to be ready for change of direction. The, the, the best players are doing a variation of this and they're just laughing at us, argue about one component of it because we think we have to sit in one corner. We think we have to sit in a quadrant, one corner of the quadrant, or we think we have to sit on one binary side of an argument. Whereas the technical coaches listen to them. They're talking to certain players and they're, they're giving them cues about separating away from the fence. They're giving them cues about their footwork coming into attack. They're giving them cues about having to find a sprint float sprint, being able to really and not just separate, but go and create space. They're talking about in a defensive line, sorry, uh, like like in, in soccer, being able to swerve and hold their feet, hold their speed and at an appropriate time, straighten up and, and accelerate and project and separate in the direction they want to go. The technical coaches know what they want. And the best, if you want to do anything, study the best players, the best players know how to do it. And if you're smart, study the best players when they're fresh, when they're fatigued, when they're when they are in form, when they're out of form, and and look at the heuristics that change. And often it's the same things we're talking about here. Um, look at the best players when they're playing well, and then when they get hurt, the moment of injury or the or the return from injury, and see the changes. That that's all we've done. We've just looked at the heuristics of what good coaches do, good players do, average and bad players, average and bad coaches. And, and start to say, well, what is the actual difference maker here? Let's let's be eclectic here. Let's look across sport. Let's look across attacking defensive scenarios. Let's look across different styles of using your hip a bit more, your ankle a bit more, being elastic or being ground-based. And let's see what are the common denominators across the board. And then let's just come up with some very simple ways of one, to screen it, and two, to coach it. And by the end of it, you're giving players tools to be able to move around the movement strategies and still be fast. Yeah, I love that. that that's a, that's a, probably a great way to uh, wrap it up, this um, segment in terms of game speed and maximising yeah, overall athlete development, ultimately, for the field-based athlete. You mentioned some workshops that you've been doing with coaches and obviously Speedworks training and maybe talk us a little bit more about that for the coaches listening in that are interested. I know you're doing a fair bit of travel, educated coaches all around the world. When are you next in Australia, I guess, for those yeah, of course. Um, around the world as well? Where, where are you presenting over, the, I guess, for the rest of the year? 
Great. So speed, just, this may be a, an important caveat. Speedwatch training is, is how I educate coaches, is how I consult with teams face-to-face, is how I deal with a lot of our face-to-face and essentially manual work. Speed Solutions is, is our is our way of, of um, our consultancies at scale. It's a far more economic, it's a far cheaper way for us to analyze. And it's a better way. I, I trust our system better than my eye now, where it will give us solutions and, and clarity about what the limitation is and even point to an exercise to where to work on it far faster than I can do it now. And so the workshops uh, will come into Melbourne in, in November, the 20th to the 28th. I'll be in, in Australia visiting five or six teams and running an event with, with Nick uh, at Sportsmap and at Essendon. And so that will be on the 25th. Grab your tickets. We've got some of our friends and from the clubs we're working with in Sydney and Brisbane all flying in. So definitely come along Sam Dodge from from the the Crows will be there. Adelaide Crows, who who we've worked with a lot the past year, and he, you know, if you guys want to understand from the horse's mouth how some of this is applied, he'll be around to to share some of his his wisdom. He won't give it all away, I promise you that. But I'm sure he'll he'll share the, the big rocks, the lessons that need to be applied in, in your first year of doing it. I'll be in 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 Arizona. I'll be at Exos event the following week, and and we have a, a host of new new courses that we've redeveloped we, we've been selling courses we've been um culminating our, our information into into online resources for the past couple of years but we've we've taken a bit of a different stance on it recently so everything that's available online will be gone um in the next two to three weeks and there'll be a new set of courses coming through and it's just basically taking the biomechanics model and and simplifying it for people and making it easy for them to understand how to best use view motion how to start to decide for the data and how to how speed solutions and, and our reports and, and essentially my philosophy can help you skip some of the steps. Like people say you can't microwave experience. You do still need to go out and get it done. But I, I promise you, I probably spent about 12 to 15 years really getting good with my coaching eye and making sense and making all the mistakes and, and what speed solutions is and what our courses are going to do is just decipher that into nuggets bite-sized chunks for you to go right bang 20 players run through the video upload a video and bang i know what i need to prioritize on i know what this metric means i know that i can ignore those 12 other metrics because even though they seem interesting to the geek mind i've only got 15 minutes to look into this and get ready because i've got to go and do water bottles i've got to go and run a rehab i've got to go and do all these other things in the off season geek out Geek out as much as you want in season. Where do you have the opportunity? It's challenging. So we're we are a satellite sports science service. We're, we're here to take the data, to do some analysis, to give you instant reports, and then if you want more education, to jump online and do the do the mentorship, to do to do the the, the, the Zoom calls, and and if you want to have me over to to do the face to face. So the, the workshops are a, a lot less this next year come to australia for a week if you want me to come to australia for longer than a week you, you tell my wife and we'll take the kids out of school and we'll be over there straight away but yeah so that's that's the summary speedworks training that's how i consult with teams speed solutions are far more economical and more efficient way of analyzing and taking my coaching eye and taking my wisdom and, and applying it straight away in your environment it can do analysis there's, and there's several systems out there right now that are doing 2D analysis. 
and even 3D analysis. We, we have some friends that we do consultancy with who are using a Qualysis system. We have some friends that are using a complete different 2D analysis system. We are agnostic to the data. We're all about providing solutions. And, and, and quite frankly, Vmotion are the best system out there at the moment. So that would be the best place for most teams to go. You don't need to spend 150 grand on a, on a 3D markerless system. You don't need to spend, I don't know what the other system would be. Maybe it's only about 25 grand on a, on a market system. You just need an iPhone, a tripod, five yellow cones, and, and a subscription to Speed Solutions, and you'll get everything you need in, in, in a matter of minutes. And for those that um, want to follow up with any questions, where's the best place to, to follow your work? My work, our social media is busy. The team have become busy again. So you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We now have a TikTok as of yesterday, I think. I am not on it. Like message me in my private account. You might get a reply in 10 days or in 21 days. I'm not great, but my email is here. Will people see my email down in the bottom corner? Yeah, we'll we'll add all those links to your socials as well as uh, Joseph's email for those driving, listening to the recording perhaps. Yeah, so you you can find my... my, Awesome. So you can find me on on Jonas at speedworks.training and you can always go to our website, speedworks.training. (laughs) <laughs> and um, speed solutions dot training, and we're, we're here to help. Just reach out. Yeah, fantastic, and yeah, make sure to check out the workshop. I'm sure those tickets are going to stab up pretty quick. There'll be high representation of uh, AFL teams and high performance staff there. So really looking forward to seeing you then, Jonas. And uh, yeah, thank you again for all your time and sharing with us your experiences, um, not only in, in the background and understanding uh, where the philosophy came from and how it's uh, forever evolving, but also yeah, how we can apply your learnings into into whether you're working with athletes, listening to this, the coaches, or for athletes as well, to understand how important it is to work on their efficiency and, and their effective running. So really appreciate it, mate. Thanks again. And uh, thank you for everyone that's tuned in live. If you're tuned in halfway, we didn't muck around. We dove straight into the good stuff. There's gems all the way through the Jonas drop. So make sure to listen to the first minute. This will be on our YouTube channel until we post it on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. I am going to Bali, so no podcast for the next two weeks or no live interviews for the next couple of weeks on holidays with the family. But our next course is with Ben Parker, the Gold Coast Suns dietitian. He's going to be doing some work with our academy members, so stay tuned. I'll post that and send out an email to you all. So thanks for everyone that's tuned in. Thanks again, Jonas. Thank you very much. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane and I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, sure yeah, game game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it 
on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that, um, you wish you either knew or did, um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just to be to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, it might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.